One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, you know the drill. I hope you're feeling spooky because you know what time it is. Or perhaps you don't. What, you've been buried for the last three months? (laughs) Uh, I have kind of an excuse. My house is under construction. Does that count? (laughs) Well... (laughs) As we've been saying these last few weeks, we are, in fact, back from the dead. Yes, yes, it is time to resurrect another season. And that means it's time for our Halloween episode, which doesn't have a crazy theme yet, but I'm feeling very creepy. You're more spooky than with our past halloween episodes right now because usually and you're weird like this you go into halloween with actually quite a light-hearted kind of uh attitude welcome guys <laughs> and ghouls <laughs> yeah yeah that, <laughs> that's the one right there like vincent price on acid not liking <laughs> halloween should be a capital offense perhaps a d capital offense And so, on tonight's fabulous Halloween episode, we'll be covering beheading and guillotines. A dangerous place to beheaded. Oh my god, I'm like, I got chills, I got the goosies. So, in fact, fun bit of etymology, and uh, the voice may make a return, but... Yeah. <laughs> that's that sounds like your uh, your Halloween like alter ego the voice the voice will return fun etymology the terms capital offense capital crime capital punishment all derive from the latin caput meaning head uh-huh. and that is because oh. they all refer to the punishment for serious offenses involving the forfeiture of the head 
at his death <laughs> by beheading. I, I'm glad you're reminding me of this time and time again, because if I didn't have my head screwed on... <laughs> <laughs> don't go all to pieces on me. You got to stay ahead of the game. Well, you don't have to take my head off. <laughs> While we talk about, before we get to the guillotines, probably the most famous method of beheading, of course, beheading has been practiced for quite a long time and in a variety of methods, from the Viking hand axe to just a casual slip and falling right into somebody's sword blade. But human <laughs> oh, ingenuity managed yeah. to start creating a device specifically for this purpose. The guillotine was not the first beheading device. In fact, it dates mm. back all the way to the 1500s. And oh, oh, that's far before like the like the classical guillotines that we know about. You know, when we study recent Western history. Yeah. So a beheading device called the plank was used in Germany and Flanders during the Middle Ages. So Was that the sound that the head made when it plunked? Yep, plunk. just plonked right into the basket. In fact, with all the crime happening, you wouldn't believe how many people were plonking. I heard it was quite a trend to plonk, actually. TikTok was the last <laughs> couple sounds you heard before oh, you plonked. I suppose you really couldn't tweet it out <laughs> at that time. You just... <laughs> now... Not only was there a plonking device in Germany and Flanders, but the English had a sliding axe known as the Halifax gibbet, which sounds actually way cooler than it was. Wow. Okay. That may have been lopping off heads all the way back to antiquity. Of course, the... um, The Halifax gibbet's invention was a... Is gibbet? Gibbet? Doesn't matter. You'll correct me in the comments. I uh, I think it's a guh. I think it's a hard G. You're probably one of those people who calls it a gif, too. Well, I, I don't. So, I kind of usually just say G-I-F. The invention <laughs> of the Halifax slidey axe. Wait, Josh, no, 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 no. Gibbet. It's a, it's a J sound. You're right. Nice. But the invention of the Halifax slidey axe is attributed <laughs> to a friar who proposed the device as a solution to the difficulty of finding local residents willing to act as hangmen. You imagine oh, okay. most of the time neighbors really didn't want to execute folks for local crime. I mean, they perfectly were happy <laughs> with people being executed. They just didn't want to be the ones to carry it out. So, Isn't that funny how it works? That <laughs> This helpful friar... Uh, created a device that you simply pulled the pin and let gravity do the work. So let's let's jump ahead to the 1790s, where we actually get the guillotine. Now, this was probably inspired by a combination of two earlier machines, the Renaissance-era Manaya from Italy and the notorious Scottish Maiden in 1564. Take a look at those. That's a fun Google search, okay. especially around this time of year. It dates back to 1789 when Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotine proposed that the French government adopt a kinder, gentler method of execution. In fact, okay. Guillotine was personally opposed to capital punishment and argued decapitation by a lightning-quick machine would be more humane than sword and axe beheadings, which were currently carried out, and were often botched. And we'll talk a little bit about what that was like later. As a result, he was 
he was kind of a fairly empathetic guy for the time, so he helped to oversee the development of the very first prototype, which was a fairly imposing-looking machine designed by another doctor, Antoine Louis, Louis, and Mm -hmm. built by a German harpsichord maker named Tobias Schmidt. (laughs) I don't know why that's making me giggle, but yeah, that's a funny name. So, took two doctors and a harpsichord maker to come up with the guillotine. (laughs) We should put in here, Josh, this is, you know, we're, we're talking about historically right now. There is a major, major halt on physicians being involved in methods of execution because of course it goes against every last you know part of the hippocratic oath and what we stand for as healers so this is not something that physicians involve themselves in anymore at all prison executions no but you risk when you some of the broad sweeping claims about the use comes back into the Kevorkian debates and the assisted suicide laws and things that are legal, I believe, in Oregon and Washington. Oh, I I do apologize. You're right. So those types of things, which are not executions, like you know, for crimes, um, I but I do agree still involve yes, a doctor a- ending life, which is right. But the doing no harm part of that is very debatable. Right, so, exactly. And that's something that you know about, you know, with your background and forward studies right now in palliative care. But once again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. And <laughs> and I don't mean to cut you off, but really. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you got us back on track. It was kind of a close shave. The, you know, we were neck and neck for a while there, but this device, the guillotine, <laughs> claimed its first yeah. official victim in April of 1792, only two years after its invention, and quickly as a result became known as the guillotine, much to the horror of its inventor, who tried to distance oh, no. himself from the machine <laughs> oh, during the hysteria of the 1790s. He was like, I wanted this to be humane, and you people, this is not the intended purpose. <laughs> um, That's so bad. Now, you yeah, might yeah. be saying... You might be saying to yourself, well, what was he so upset about? You know, he invented a machine for execution that was used for execution and to be a fast, humane method. Well, right. Santosh, do you know what it was like to attend a beheading in 1700s France? I do. Not personally. Um, <laughs> not personally. But I do know that it was kind of a public event, wasn't it? You actually had a lot of people come out and cheering and jeering sometimes throwing rotten food and that kind of a thing it was um no, almost you're a thinking, form of entertainment yeah. throwing rotten food is not in it you're thinking of monty python and medieval you know era pillory depictions no yeah that's where i get all my history facts from josh the the, the documentaries by monty python <laughs> well let me let me fill you in as we take a brief hop into our way back machine Okay, And we're going to journey to the French Revolution. And as you step out into the streets, mm-hmm. the filthy... Ah, syphilis! <laughs> Sorry. The filthy <laughs> horse-ridden streets, uh, horse-dung-ridden streets and those. This is a major event, like a modern-day monster truck rally or country fair. Uh, and you can buy souvenirs. 
there are programs with a list of the victims' names to be executed that day, like some kind of wrestling match. Wow. Uh, some cow. people, you know, this is the kind of thing which this is running for weeks and weeks at a time. There's always criminals. So some people sure. attended on a daily basis. Some people attended on such a daily basis that they became known as groupies, most famously the known the Tricotuses, a group of morbid okay. women who supposedly <laughs> sat beside the scaffold and knitted in between beheadings. I want you to picture <laughs> like four oh or five little grannies sitting on <laughs> rocking chairs making like, well, I guess he won't need this scarf. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this is awful. Well, and I've got to say, this is kind of a snapshot of human history for a long time, especially in Western history, right? There have always been a fascination with this kind of morbid kind of thing. You go back to ancient Rome and the Colosseum and even modern day where you have, you know, we don't have the public executions and stuff, right? But you still have like people fighting each other. And we'll be talking about a little bit later, but sports ball. You know, sports ball, which are kind of like these little substitutes for, you know, people just beating the crap out of each other for the public's enjoyment. During so. during the 1790s, as we're walking yeah. around, so over in one corner near the near the scaffold, you've got the Tricotuses okay. knitting scarfs and cackling madly, going there sure. daily. You have mm-hmm. programs being sold. Uh, but, you know, you need something <laughs> for everyone. What about for the kiddies, you know? You, you, this is an event. You don't want your child to miss this. So, oh God, how are you? No. Gonna, how are you going to commemorate it? Go home with a two foot tall replica blade and timber, a popular toy in France based on news articles of the time. What? Kids use the fully operational guillotines to decapitate dolls or small rodents. Oh, oh. Until some towns eventually banned them out of fear they were a vicious influence. They're like, video (laughs) games haven't been invented yet. What can we look around for? To ban. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it wasn't just the little kitties in on the fun. This also got to go, nor the old people. Rich people needed something to do. You know, the ones who weren't being executed. So novelty-sized guillotines also found their way onto dinner tables where they were used as bread and vegetable slicers. (laughs) So that's like the scene from Robin Hood Men in Tights where Friar Tuchman takes out the little, uh, you know, where he talks about a bris. He says, I, I'll give you a bris. And he says, I take your little thing, I put it in here, and we shunk, nip the tip. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So it turns out, Santos, your method of obtaining history from Mel Brooks movies and Monty Python, yeah. <laughs> not terribly inaccurate. <laughs> wow. Now, can I donate one piece of interesting uh you know part of this was not in france this was 1820s to 1840s that was also part of glamorizing the beheading and uh, executions and stuff that i actually i i think i can teach you about if maybe you haven't heard about this before go for it let's let's glam up the executions santosh it's a halloween yeah. episode <laughs> so if you look up the Newgate novel or Newgate novels, so these were published in England from the 1820s and 1840s, and it started from the Newgate calendar, 
which had a biography of famous criminals. And it was rearranged or embellished. And these were tiny little novels that you could read about like the history, a little bit like the programs that you're talking about. But these things actually made it into circulation. And they had a few names like Penny Dreadfuls. And you might have seen Penny Dreadful as a, a show recently on something or other. But these were the original Penny Dreadfuls. And so you could get a, a Newgate novel and learn all about, you know, uh, welcome to so-and-so's beheading. This young man of 34 years of age uh, has been punished for, you know, and, and you'd go through it all. So it actually became such a genre that there were people like Charles Dickens, right? And who glamorized uh, thieving and stealing in Oliver Twist. So it was thought that Oliver Twist was actually considered to be one of these Newgate novels that glamorized and embellished uh, the life of a criminal. Josh, Josh, you could get these, right? So you could get these novels and you could also get along with it if you wanted. It was named after a, a thief named Jack Shepard. You could get a little Jack Shepard bag, which was filled with burglary tools. <laughs> and so you'd go to the lobby of the theater where you'd have the like the dramatization of these things and you could pick up a Newgate novel and a Jack Shepard bag so you could be like ha I'm like a criminal now <laughs> that is amazing I wish <laughs> podcasts were a visual medium and you could see <laughs> my face actually I wish this was a TV show let's get on that <laughs> And once we do, maybe we'll take on almost as much fame and notoriety as executioners during the French Revolution. Oh my god, were they like celebrities? Were they celebrities? They were closely (laughs) judged. This was the earliest version of You's Got Talent, when they were closely (laughs) judged on how quickly and precisely they could orchestrate multiple beheadings. The job was often a family business. Multi- uh-huh. For example, okay. multiple generations of the famed Sanson family served as state executioner from 1792 to 1847 and were responsible wow. for such famous drops. Drop the blade on King <laughs> Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. They would oh, have wow. been... Okay. The executioners would have been as well known to the watching crowd as the people being executed, and in some cases, King and Marie Antoinette notwithstanding, even better. So Whoa. think of them as again like medieval wrestlers or announcers. Uh, yeah, or or these would be the equivalent of like your gladiators from Rome, right? So you you cheer for like your favorite or whatever. That's so creepy. Gladiators isn't even quite right. Think Gallagher okay. with a license to kill. <laughs> oh so these were like stand-ups yeah. like oh have you have you seen the sanson act oh yeah yeah but i i liked his father much before you're too young whippersnapper to have seen the older sanson yeah you should like have that seen, kind of thing you know what i'm so glad you mentioned that santosh because okay, during okay. the 19th and 20th centuries you had no. chief headsman fell to louis and anatoly diebler a father and okay. son pair Whose combined, <laughs> okay. 
whose combined tenure extended from 1879 to 1940. Yeah, yeah, you did hear that right. 1940. We'll talk, we'll talk about when the guillotine finally went out of use, but it wasn't before World War II. Whoa, um, that is so crazy. People in the streets would chant the Sanson and Diebler's names. Their choice of clothing on the scaffold was known to inspire fashion trends. Black. Dude, what? Uh, <laughs> they executioners, but it wasn't just the general populace. Even your Newgate okay. novel folks were fascinated yeah, yeah. by the people who would be responsible for killing them. According to some accounts, gangsters and other hoods would get tattoos with slogans such as, My head goes to Dibbler. <laughs> Dude, this is such a strange cult following. This is this is like star athletes and stuff, just like what you're talking about. So just like Robert Jordan, or Robert Jordan, just like uh, Michael Jordan. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> just like Michael Jordan would put out like a line of shoes and now everybody wants to buy LeBron's or Jordan's or whatever they are, you could get a Diebler or something like that. That's so creepy. Right. So when you've got executioners influencing fashion trends, you know, these, <laughs> these were the original Instagrammers, TikTokers, as they plonked all over the place. <laughs> Um, so, you know, think of them as medieval luchadors, but okay. although fascination with the guillotine began to wane near the end of the 18th century, public beheadings uh -huh. continued in France until about 1940. Uh, Wait, Josh, 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 with the fashion and everything you're talking about, there was guillotine jewelry. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so creepy. And the delight, oh my God. the delicious irony of wearing a small guillotine around your neck just gets sure. me every time. <laughs> okay. Um, so public beheadings continued in France until 1939. Uh, mm -hmm. They didn't actually stop executing people by guillotine until 1977. That's right. The year what? Star Wars came out. What? <laughs> so, like, Luke loses a hand. Well, I guess that would be later on. And France, <laughs> and France says, hey, we're getting lightsabers? To hell with guillotines. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, wait, how did the... Because you were saying, like, there was an irony that went along with the the uh, the earrings going on. Josh, these are so creepy. You have the part that, you know, goes through your ear, and then there's a hanging guillotine, and then there's a medallion of a head upside down underneath it, like the head has fallen off. <laughs> this is like, it's a, it's a special commemorative earring specifically for Louis Sixteenth. Yeah. Yo. Now we start getting towards the science and medical part. I know. I know. Sometimes <laughs> I, I just lose my head over all the history. <laughs> well, we should, you know, being a medical podcast and everything, we should note to everyone that as far as we know right now, a human person cannot live without a head. And I know that might come as a shock. Well, Actually, it wasn't understood. Like this was the question was for a long time: How much consciousness are you retaining 
after decapitation. Because okay. if you recall, it mm -hmm. was originally designed to provide a quick and painless death. Okay. However, yes. there are multiple anecdotal reports of people blinking their eyes or moving their mouths, or in one notable instance, a person being uh, slapped on the cheeks and becoming red in the face and appearing angry. And while this made for a wonderful spectacle, it did concern a couple of the folks involved at the time, saying maybe this you know, isn't the humane execution that we thought it was. Sure. Okay. So before we talk about what they did to investigate in the 17th century, let's talk about how this is still kind of a question that came up today. Now, we're no longer guillotining humans. Okay. Yes. But, no, yeah, we are not. But yes. Dutch neuroscientist, I, and I love where you're like, wait, what do you mean, but? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is something I do know something about doing being an animal experimenter is you can go on medical and, and sorry science supply websites and you can still find little tiny mouse guillotines <laughs> and i i shouldn't laugh about it depending on your protocol and depending on if it's justifiable yes guillotine is still a euthanasia that's performed with our lab rats and lab mice. So Dutch neuroscientist Anton Konin of Radboud or Radbod, that's a cool name, University <laughs> Nijmegen. Guys, okay. I know we're early no, in no, the no, season, <laughs> but let's just, let me just lay my cards on the table now. Yeah. I can't pronounce a lot of languages and you're all just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, and I, I can't even help in this case because I do not know Dutch. So, Dutch neuroscientist Anton Konin of Radboud University Nijmegen and his colleagues were concerned, <laughs> sure. okay. yeah. were concerned about the ethics of killing lab rats via decapitation. Yes, yes. The question they wrote was whether awake rats suffer from a swift beheading or if they quickly lose consciousness and avoid much pain. To find out, the researchers decapitated rats that were both awake as well as ones that were anesthetized, while simultaneously measuring the electrical activity in their brains with an EEG. In can both... you imagine that teeny tiny little EEG? It's so cute. Can you imagine that teeny tiny little rat wearing like a French-style <laughs> wig? That... <laughs> you Well... I guess you'd have to put the wig over the uh, the wires and stuff, but yeah. <laughs> In Just, both? Uh, oh, and, and, and a little like squeaky voice going, let them eat cake. <laughs> let them eat pellets. Um, <laughs> In both the awake and the anesthetized rats, the EEG or brain waves went dead about 17 seconds after decapitation. Although the 17 researchers seconds. and seventeen seconds can be a long time to That's realize you have no head, time. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. the researchers mm. noted it was at a low enough level in terms of EEG activity to suggest a lack of consciousness within about three point seven seconds. Okay, okay. So you, you uh, there was still electrical activity detectable, but not much. So you had a 
you had electrical activity that slowly petered out but still existed for about 17 seconds. After about 3.7, you lost kind of most of what you would associate with a conscious, awake brain. Um, But then they noticed something very strange. About a minute, a full minute after decapitation, a slow, large electrical wave spread through the rat's brains, and they published these findings in 2011 in Plus One. What's the name of the journal? It's a, it's a wonderful open access company, PLOS. Now, this burst, this burst in the rats seen about a minute after decapitation is a result of brain cells suddenly losing access to oxygen and energy. And this burst of brain activity has since been dubbed the wave of death. Hi! Whoa. Bye! <laughs> I if they name that that is a wonderfully morbid description and it's one of the few instances of a scientist naming things well. It's thought to be a marker of the moment of brain death, which is okay. how we currently define death as death is a process. The breath and the heart must cease, as must brain activity, for somebody to be declared, you know, fully dead instead dead. of just not mm-hmm. quite dead. Yes. Um, Turns out this one is mostly dead. <laughs> not necessarily irreversible, according to PLOS research. Uh, that's true. Yes, that's true. That's true. Now, the act. So they also did some of these kinds of studies without going into details on humans they didn't decapitate them but the same <laughs> levels of eeg in dying patients is detected or large enough to be detected by the same eeg along with the rats where you see that change from consciousness to the quote unquote flat lines for brains and then again, that wave of death. Scientifically, the the current thought is that maybe there's around three and a half seconds. I mean, okay, we'll okay, speculate. That's fair. We'll we'll speculate on our own in a moment. But let's go back to sure. our 17th century French doctors. Uh, okay, people even then were. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Vince, no, people are, there were arguments on both sides that felt people were conscious and this was unethical or that, no, you're confusing nervous spasms with sensory perception and voluntary motion. Because when you sever our 
lizard brain, our cerebellum that has, you know, basic brainstem reflexes, you can see things. And if you don't believe that you can have spasms, whatever, just go ahead and punch your knee just below the kneecap and watch as you have a (laughs) reflex action. Your brain also has these actions. So if you sever at the neck, you may see some of these spasms, which is what one side of doctors was arguing. Very little research was actually conducted on this until the late 19th, early 20th century, when another French doctor, Burio, was permitted to make an investigation of a severed head, a criminal called Languille, immediately after being guillotined. So in his notes, he writes, here is what I saw immediately after decapitation. The eyelids and lips of the decapitated man worked in irregularly rhythmic contractions for approximately four to six seconds before smoothing. I waited several seconds longer. The spasmodic movement ceased. The face relaxed. The lids half closed in the eyeballs, leaving only the white of the conjunctiva visible, exactly as in the dying whom we have occasion to see every day. Wow. However, That's a hell of a description. However, a report by a secondhand observer states that he also then called the name after he saw that slack jaw. He called Languille, Languille. And in some reports, the eyes opened back up. And this was enough to convince around that time that there was, in fact, some degree of consciousness, which really ended up Uh, being the prevailing opinion up until around 1956. Most people were convinced, and this negated the idea of a, maybe not a quick quick or painless death, because it was felt that there'd be phantom limb syndrome with your entire body, that severing of the neck would cause the last few moments, to the extent you were conscious, to be filled with pain, and that you couldn't know whether or not somebody was conscious. And so by 1977, it was ended as a means of execution. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I'm kind of sad that it had to take so long to kind of figure out, but I'm happy that we came to this conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we're still arguing about it to this day. Uh, People love to speculate on a scientific basis. (laughs) On a scientific basis, yes, but I think by and large, in the developed world, you're not going to see decapitation as a form of punishment for any crimes. Oh, my friend! Oh no! Let me introduce you to a couple countries called Democratic Republic of the Congo, Saudi Arabia, uh, parts of the Philippines, a wide variety of islands in Indonesia. Uh, beheading, maybe not by guillotine, but beheading is still carried out in many places, sometimes as a form of, as we said, capital punishment, or rather decapitation punishment, and other Mm -hmm. times for fun and recreation in guerrilla wars. Oh, gosh. Which means people are still debating to what extent folks are conscious. Now, my thought on it is this. The simple fact is rapid losses in blood pressure, such as losing, I don't know, all but maybe 10 pounds of your weight in about Uh two seconds, cause you to pass out. Look up vasovagal syncope, orthostatic syncope. Even if the blood that is in your head is perfectly oxygenated, which is what likely is causing 
the blinking or the mouth moving, you have enough oxygen left in your blood to supply for a few seconds devices that your brain can instantly reach, like what's to hand, so to speak. But a rapid greater than 10% loss in blood pressure will almost instantly make you pass out. And to think that you could retain consciousness in a setting where we know people can't retain consciousness when they have their entire body seems to me unlikely at best for humans. Right. So now it comes to, you know, capital punishment as a whole, which is an important debate. And it also comes to, I don't know how quite how to put this, whether even that little bit of consciousness, you know, you, you, you do pass out, but that, I guess what you'd call, you know, half conscious, you know, where just reflexes are firing off. Does that still count? Or is it the kind of level of consciousness that you and I think about when you're awake and aware and all that? So that, I guess (laughs) we're splitting hairs. (laughs) I feel terrible about that one. <laughs> yes, it, we might it is be rather on. Out. It is rather on the nose. <laughs> oh. But you have to keep an eye on the story and your ear to the ground. I suppose you would. Otherwise, you'd be running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Which there was, in fact, when people use that phrase. While chickens do do that, the most famous one is the chicken Mike, who due to a farmer wanted wanted dinner and (laughs) cut off Mike's head. But just through a series of serendipitous occurrences, I suppose, uh, (laughs) it severed at such an angle that part of the brainstem was still left intact, enough to run the most basic functions of the chicken. And Mike lived without his head for 18 months. <laughs> he still would preen, he would try and peck at the ground, and the farmer charged admission to see Mike. Look it up, Mike the Headless Chicken. Wonderful <laughs> read. Uh, now, of course, the next logical step from decapitation is going to be resurrection, a la Futurama heads. Oh, yeah. Are we going to bring up one of our wonderful uh roster of scientists that we come back to every now and again well let's let's briefly mention and then we'll go back into some history uh and i'll close with a ghost story but yeah let's talk about one of our favorite scientists for lack of a better word (laughs) yeah (laughs) for all kinds of weird reasons we're just before we start anything, we're not endorsing his experiments. We basically, we love him for the same reason that you kind of sort of love Gary Busey. One month <laughs> today, he has a good head on his shoulders. <laughs> oh, God, that's creepy. And of course, we're referring to... My... You can't get it out of your head? <laughs> Can't get it out of your head, Santosh. Oh, okay. Oh, God, it's itching my brain. <laughs> Maybe just a little uh, off the top. Just move on. You're going to make me cry. We are, uh, of course, talking about Sergio Canavero, the Italian scientist and neurosurgeon who is attempting to head, conduct no, the world's uh, first head transplant. 
I, we don't even know if he is at this point, <laughs> but he, he seems to be publishing TED, stuff. So. He just gave a TED talk on it, and I sent you one of his most recent papers, an editorial on a spinal transplant published earlier this year. So we will link to a couple. We'll link to that paper. Maybe we'll link to his TED talk. I still don't know how much I want to promote him. I just love reading about him. <laughs> if he's sincere in his beliefs that, oh, you know, you can preserve the head and then move the head to a different body and stuff. And, you know, taking the steps to try to examine this problem, then he's just a mad genius ahead of his time. But I, we still don't know. Well, because <laughs> the thing is, he may not be as ahead of his time as you think, because he simply wants to transfer a head from one body to another. But right. even earlier and ever since decapitation, we've been talking about reanimating a head separate from a body, a decorporated head. And this sure. has been going on for years and years from the 1920s all the way to, oh, let's say in 1987 lawyer Chet Fleming was issued a patent for a device for perfusing a head. And in the application, he describes a series of tubes that would circulate blood and nutrients through the head, taking deoxygenated blood away, essentially performing a circulatory system. And this okay. was called a prophetic patent. That is a patent for something that has never been built and may never be built, but could then be used to prevent others from trying to keep severed heads alive using that technology because they would have to, of course, apply for the patent. It doesn't commit you, you taking out a patent doesn't commit you to making the device, but it does prevent yeah. anyone else doing so unless you license them. Uh, so this, this is an important side note because I know there may be some of our listeners out there and a lot of other people saying that like, oh, we know we can do this because there's a patent on it. No. No, <laughs> yeah, no. Mr. Fleming has done us a service in both drawing our attention to the issue and the method of stalling further development. Um, <laughs> however, however, he did write a book about his patent, and it was reviewed by the British Medical Journal and uh, immunohemato immunohematologist Terence Hamblin uh, did not believe Fleming, who that was a pen name, uh, didn't believe Fleming was serious. He thinks... It was done, again, exclusively to prevent other people from doing it. Or it may have been, you know, he may have been trying to prevent people like Sergio Canavero from keeping heads alive separate from bodies. And now we have to transport them onto new bodies. So you're saying this might have been a gag. I'm saying that scientists like a prank as much as the next guy. <laughs> and lawyer scientists doubly so. We do. We really do. So let's close with a little uh, ghost story, a headless ghost story, which is partially science and reality based. Santosh, okay. are you familiar with the story of Professor McDowell's head? Professor McDowell's head? I am not. No, I thought you were maybe going to go to the very famous one with Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman. No, I feel like that's that's been... Uh, done to death you know it'd be beating a dead horse <laughs> um i suppose you would so tell me about professor mcdowell so let me tell you about july 1925 well june to july of 1925 readers okay. of a moscow daily the workers gazette eagerly awaited each issue 
of the newest paper for the next installment of the head of Professor Dowell. Okay. Uh, written okay. by Alexander Believ. The story unfolds in an unidentified city in the United States, beginning with the meeting of a certain Professor Kern and a recent medical graduate, Miss Adams, desperately looking for a job to support her family. Kern offers Adams a position as his assistant on one condition. She must be mute as a fish and never talk to anyone about anything she sees or hears in his laboratory. Oh, boy. (laughs) uh, Listeners, don't ever take that deal. Ever. Just walk away. (laughs) Listeners, grad student life is tough. Don't let anyone dictate to you what your choices should be. So, Miss Adams... So here's a, here's the story, a brief excerpt, and then we can go into some more. Miss Adams turned her head and suddenly saw something that made her shudder as if from electric shock. A human mm. head stared at her, a head alone, without a body. It was mounted on a square platform made of glass and supported by four long, shiny metal legs. From its cut neck, from the aortas, through the holes in the glass, two tubes ran to tanks. A third tube came out of the head's throat and ran to a large cylinder. They had valves, manometers, thermometers, and other unknown, at least to Miss Adams, instruments. The head looked at Miss Adams attentively and mournfully, blinking its eyes. There could be no doubt. The head was alive. Severed from its body, it led its own separate and conscious existence. Live human thought shone in its eyes. Wow. Despite her shock, She recognizes the head. It looks like the head of Professor Dowell, a prominent scientist and surgeon renowned for his experiments on the, tell me if this sounds familiar, revival of separate organs and transplants excised from fresh cadavers. (gasps) Oh my God, it's Frankenstein. Or Sergio. Whose public lectures, yeah, whose public lectures Miss Adams had frequented during her studies in medical school. Professor Kern sees her looking at the head, and rather than flip out in typical supervillain fashion, he confirms her impression. Yeah, the head does indeed belong to his teacher and colleague and research associate, who has succumbed to an as yet incurable disease. In his will, he had donated his body for scientific experiments, and Kern was simply following his wishes. Okay. So Kern (laughs) explains her duties will be to take care of his head, and she accepts the job. You know, like sprinkle a little fish food into the tank. Um, (laughs) He shows her how to operate the machinery, but forbids her to touch a valve on the big cylinder, warning that it will certainly kill the head. And after a few weeks, Miss Adams and the head establish kind of a communication, and the head repeatedly indicates that it wants Miss Adams to open the valve on the cylinder. Thinking that the head wants her to end its suffering, she continues to refuse and refuse. But in time, they develop such an emotional connection that she's like, fine, I'll do it. And she opens the valve. And as it turns out, that action doesn't kill the head, but gives it a voice. The cylinder contains compressed air, which blowing through the throat makes it able to speak. Talk. Okay, gotcha. Uh, And then turns into a, unsurprisingly, it talks about his last bout of asthma that led to his death. And she begins to suspect that instead of helping his professor, Kern actually murdered Dowell with a lethal injection of morphine and then forced the revived head into continuing the research, which Kern now presents as his own. Whoa. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, and the head, you know, while telling her this also says, you know, don't tell the authorities because then like now my research must live on. I don't care about who takes, who takes the uh, credit. The story goes on from there, but, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, essentially, as you expect, Miss Adams does at some point out Kern's secret in return, sure, sure. because this takes place in the 1920s. Uh, he has uh-huh. her committed to a mental institution. Oh, th- yep, of course. She's insane. I, in, insane, I tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Eventually, the son of Professor Dowell comes to America, and he arranges for her release from the mental institution, and they uh, convince the authorities to go on a hunt and conduct a search of Kern's laboratory. Okay. They do find the head in bad shape, uh-huh. but before it finally expires with the last valve, the last breath in the valve, it does confirm to the police her accusations. <gasps> oh my god. Wait, can you believe that? I mean, can you actually use that as like an eyewitness? I guess it has eyes, so yeah. <laughs> well, less than three months after Beliab's story had appeared, this scientific fantastic idea, the possibility of keeping a severed head alive in a laboratory, mm-hmm. came true. Whoa. Okay, On, okay. The caveat is not with a human. On 18th yes, of September... Yes. On 18 September 1925, Sergei Bryokonenko, a young doctor from the Chemical Pharmaceutical Institute, demonstrated to the Congress of Russian Pathologists in Moscow an apparatus called the autojector that he had constructed to keep alive the severed heads of laboratory animals that included two electric pumps that supplied the severed head of a dog with citrated blood through a system of tubes. Outflowing okay. blood was oxygenated in a special vessel, warmed okay. to between 37 and 40 degrees Celsius, and then pumped back in the head. The head was kept alive for about two hours and 40 minutes and exhibited various reflexes. And although this appeared in reports on the Congress and medical journals, the popular press paid no attention. So okay, okay. a year later, he did it again. What? <laughs> Okay, so he's trying to replicate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's fair. By the way, this would not pass any kind of muster in terms of like an animal ethics board right now. It didn't then either. But... <laughs> oh, oh, okay, gotcha. But the researcher noted that he had succeeded in keeping a dog alive after its heart and lungs had been taken out and replaced by machinery, continued to live, and again, he did replicate it where it stayed alive for approximately two hours it reacted to stimuli opened its mouth and moved its legs eyes reacted okay. to light uh and okay. it seemed the newspaper moved its legs yeah the body was on hooked up to separate tubes the root half the room away well, how did the the spinal cord communicate unrelated what <laughs> oh sorry sorry so the the legs were moving kind of independently yeah he so was he focused... was keeping the he was focused on he keeping, was keeping the head, the head alive. alive. Gotcha, gotcha. But at the same time, he was keeping the body alive in a different room. So the the legs and stuff were moving according to like spinal reflexes. Um, yeah. So there were. Okay. So re- the reporter praised the invention essentially as artificial heart that enabled the resurrection of a dead head. And again, uh, this is. Pretty creepy. He did it a year later in 1927, (laughs) a third time. 
Okay. And now, the body lies dead. Only the severed head is alive. It does not bark, but the mouth opens and the tongue pushes out a piece of cotton soaked in iodine solution. If someone moves a piece of paper in front of the head, its eyelids close in anticipation. He praised oh, the like invention. Corneal reflex. Yeah, okay. he praised the invention as an artificial heart that enabled the resurrection of a dead head and kept it alive for almost twenty-four hours. Wow. Okay, so this was—I mean, this is something you and I are familiar with, which is ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, where you can pump the blood and oxygenate it and remove carbon dioxide. So this is, but that's separate from like keeping the head alive. This is this is used in cases where you have severe heart failure or or other situations like this. At the end of May 1928, at the Congress of Soviet Physiologists, he presented a total of five reports on his research. Three of okay. them. So he he was really hammering away at this. Three <laughs> of them dealt with issues of crucial importance: coagulation and stabilization of blood. The fourth okay. one, supplemented by a demonstration, described the use of his autojector for establishing a fake an artificial circulation. And the last okay. one, presented jointly with a different researcher, detailed various experiments with this head kept alive by the use of the device. This is so wild, dude. Wow. Okay. Even women's, I know we've gone even the Soviet the- women's magazine carried a piece on the life of organs outside the body, and this began to filter into Western media in the nineteen uh, late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, to the point that George okay. Bernard Shaw was commenting on his work and said, "Hey, he should cut off my head, then I could keep writing great plays and never have to eat, sleep, or hear from my wife." Nah, which I have no yeah. idea if that's what Shaw sounds like, or if I'm confusing him with Groucho yeah. Marx. <laughs> The point being, he was well known in both yeah. the West in this. Uh, so, gotcha. multiple studies have been determined in the past, or retroactive studies have been done to see if this was a hoax. But it does appear that at least for the time, the science was holding up. And as you mentioned, Santosh, we can do something similar, although not with heads, using ECMO. Yeah. Right. So that's when the head is still attached to the bo- <laughs> attached to the body, but the heart is failing or the lungs are failing. We can put a patient on bypass or on ECMO where this machine takes the blood out, warms it, removes the carbon dioxide, adds oxygen and circulates back into another great vessel like close to the aorta or into the carotids. So it's, yeah, the, the principle works really well, but in our case, when we're doing that for a patient, we're keeping them alive with their head attached while we're waiting for something like a heart transplant or if we're waiting for the heart or lungs to heal up from injury. So that's it. <laughs> you know, you get the brief story of Professor Dowell accompanied almost within the same time period by actual head resuscitation. Sure. And it could have just been a coincidence, or one could have influenced the other, but we may never know. However, the Depression and subsequent world wars kind of, well, cut the head off that research. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I suppose it did. So I hope you all enjoyed this year's Halloween episode. If we're still traveling... Mm. 
if anyone can go anywhere, yeah. the last place or one of the few places you can still see a severed human head on display is in Lisbon, Portugal, where they have the head of the first serial killer uh, decapitated as a capital offense remains on display in a museum in Lisbon. So if you would like to see what a Futurama-style head in a jar would look like when it's severed, uh, the good or bad news, depending on your particular idea, would be uh, you can go to Portugal and see a human head on display. The first thing you'll notice (laughs) upon entering the anatomical theater at the University of Lisbon's Faculty of Medicine is the lone pickled head up on a shelf, looking yellow, peaceful, and somewhat like a potato. It is the <laughs> head of Diego Alves, who was Portugal's okay. first serial killer and the very last man to be hanged there. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. So this was a criminal's head. Yes, and it was preserved for the purposes of phrenology, meaning bumps on the head can tell about your personality personality yeah which is a it's a dead disproven thing yeah um so this part of university is only open to students it's not typically accessible by the public but if you ask real nice and you have an academic reason to be there such as researching (laughs) episodes on on head transplants you may yeah, be uh-huh. allowed to view the severed head of a human being. If that is your morbid cup of tea, great. If that makes you feel like you're about to lose your head, well, then head on out. <laughs> and because we're talking about Portugal, yes, you can you can head on over to the Museum of Pharmacy, which I had spoken about a little I think maybe a couple of seasons back as adjust the tip, which is a fantastic place where you can find about all about the history of drugs and medications throughout, um, throughout time, which is, it's a free visit to a museum, which is fantastic. So Lisbon actually two fantastic just the tips. That's a lot to wrap your head around Santosh. <laughs> I, I don't think I can, quite you know sink my teeth into it well i suppose it's time for us to head on out and wrap up this year's (laughs) halloween episode before you all come screaming for our heads (laughs) that would be well i don't know maybe in this context it's a it's a compliment if you're all you know came you Give us the heads of Dr. Josh and Dr. Santosh. And, you know, that's that's maybe like a compliment. Like, ah, oh, there's some pretty good heads. Well, <laughs> we thank you. As does the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> <laughs> that's it Again, for this people, week. There, there's no computer manipulation or editing. That's just... One man's extreme voice talents on display for you. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for suggested further reading to peruse and let sink into your head. Our theme music (laughs) is headed up by Rachel Leisure. (laughs) 
this show is produced by Dr. Josh with a lot of helping hands from Dr. Santosh and others. <laughs> Always happy to lend a hand, Josh. Just give it back later. Among any other oh. body parts. Is that a euphemism? And until <laughs> next time, as always, happy travels and happy Halloween. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.